Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Right, welcome everybody. I'm here with Dr. Sultan Barga, who is the director of the Zebrafish International Resource Center at the University of Oregon. How are you doing, Dr. Barga? Thank you. I'm great. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Can you give us a little bit of, of your background, please? So, um, I was born at a very young age. <laughs> I have a Hungarian background. That's my name, Zoltan Varga. My parents were refugees from Hungary. I grew up in Germany and I went to university in Basel at the Biocenter, uh, did, the, did there my undergraduate and PhD, and then went to Monty Westerfield's lab in uh, Oregon, came back to Freiburg here in, Ger in Germany in Wolfgang Drieber's department and had my uh, research group there and then came back to direct the Zebrafish Resource Center. What, what a journey, right? It's yeah, it's been we've moved across the Atlantic a couple of times. Yes. Wow. It's not fun. Too many cardboard boxes. <laughs> Dr. Varga, can you please summarize the role of the Zebrafish International Research Center? I just want to tell I just want to show the audience the magnitude of of the center. So would you be kind enough to tell us some, for example, some numbers, how many lines, how many tanks, how many fish do you have? Stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the 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 main purpose is to serve as a genetic repository for zebrafish lines. And um, in addition to that, we're also providing um, diagnostic health services to zebrafish um, facilities. Um, the repository function is collecting, maintaining, and redistributing lines. And the diagnostic health service um, encompasses that researchers can send us their fish uh, fixed or alive. And then we have a, a, a Zerk veterinarian who um, diagnoses them um, based on histopathological sections and in collaboration with the Oregon Veterinary Disease Laboratory in Corvallis, which is about 90 miles north from here. We're also doing the molecular characterization of some of the diseases we identify. For the repository, um, this building was uh, built specifically for this function. Monty Westerfield is the PI. And um, um, in the time when it was built around 2000, 1999, um, 2000, there had been just the Tübingen screens that have been, Tübingen Boston screen for genetic mutations been completed. And there were about two, 3000 uh, mutations available. And so um, this facility was developed for about 500 fish lines. And um, in the last, I, I joined in 2004 and um, then in the meantime, we have about 12,600 fish lines and they contain uh, about uh, 
46,500 alleles. And um, this was made possible because we invested heavily in cryopreservation. And um, so most, actually all lines are cryopreserved and we only keep the fish lines around anymore that are absolutely necessary, that are very, very popular. And then of course the wild type lines that we cannot cryopreserve by sperm cryopreservation because we need eggs to reactivate them. So we have about, we, we can maintain up to 4,000 fish tanks. Each tank holds about 20 fish. We can have a capacity, and then we have 20-gallon tanks and, and uh, five-gallon tanks also. We have about 4,001 gallons, about two, 320 gallons. And we use the 20 gallons for the wild-type lines mainly. So we can have up to 100,000 fish, but due to cryopreservation, we can be really efficient and we keep about 30,000 live fish now. The idea here is that exchange of fish lines is complicated and shipping has to be researched, packaging has to be done right, and researchers would have to invest time and resources and effort to do that, especially researching international exchange of fish lines. And if we keep all these fish lines around, then researchers don't have to. They also don't have to deal with the exchange. And so that research money is saved for researchers to do research, right? So that's the philosophy about our... Dr. Study. Varga, I think we should explain to the audience what a fish line is. What does it mean when you talk about fish lines? Okay, so a fish line is essentially a family of, um, of fish, and they contain a genetic mo modification. And that genetic modification could, for example, be a mutation that destroys a gene, either partially or entirely. And based on that loss of function, we can then see what this gene is normally used for. The, the traditional concept of whenever you want to know what something is good for, remove yeah. it, right? Yes. It's one of the genetic paradigms to try and um, understand genetic function, right? The other one is to overexpress it, you know. And, uh, but that is not quite as instructive as actually removing it, because then you really see the deficit of function that should be there. And if it generates, leads to a really um, obvious change in the appearance of the fish, you know, or the, the organ, uh, an organ that is missing or malformed, then you have a very, very clear indication that that gene is normally used to, or required, you know, to make an organ or the cell types. And there are transgenes, that's when you take foreign genes and you knock them into the genome. Um, they can be just a transgene on its own. Or let's, for example, say a fluorescent uh, protein. And depending on where it is ending up in the genome, it might come under the control of a regulatory region and then be expressed there. But most often you clone a piece of DNA take a regulatory region of the zebrafish genome, put a fluorescent protein or another reported gene attached to it, and then that is in the genome. And so it will be activated in, the, in those cells or tissues where normally that reported gene is active. And so in the center, you hold all these different knockouts and overexpressions and transgene lines. And when other researchers need so, they, for example, they can read a study and they say, okay, I want to follow up on this. Can you send me fish that have these and these, these particular gene knockouts or these particular conditions? 
you would be able to provide that that fish exactly they didn't have exactly. to create it again yeah we have a website and our inventory is um shown on the website and so it's it's kind of like fish amazon <laughs> um, where you can come to a website and you can check the boxes of the fish lines you want and um <clears throat> they are either provided as live embryos or adults or they're provided as um frozen um resource it just means that we would um thaw the frozen resource and in vitro fertilize and we still ship live fish i i have to ask you this really basic question but why zebra fish why is zebra fish such a mm -hmm. great model it goes back to uh george streisinger who um here in eugene was a um virologist at on the institute for molecular biology and he uh, being a virologist he was interested in finding a vertebrate model that um offered similar you know ease of access to vertebrate gene function as the virus had to understand gene functions for him he was a hobby aquarist and so he knew about um zebra fish and that they were relatively easy to maintain in the aquarium and that they bred well and so he established um the zebra fish in his laboratory in the 1970s and by the 1980s the early 1980s he was the first one to actually have cloned a vertebrate and so he explored all the basic genetic tools that we still use today in in to a large degree and unfortunately he passed away in the early mid 1980s and then a lot of the students and and junior PIs who were here at the uh, institute of neuroscience they picked up the zebrafish work because it was a obviously a really advantageous model the embryos are transparent and so you can see every single cell as it divides in the early embryo and then how those cells move generate tissue layers gen generate rudimentary organs organs and up to the second day of development when pigmentation starts you can follow all these uh, cellular processes in a whole organism right and you combine that with genetics and you have a very powerful model to understand how genes regulate embryonic development and early larval development and so that's where it all began and can you tell me what has it been studied for like examples of mechanisms that have been discovered using mm -hmm. zebra fish please i mean uh, one of the really big discoveries was when we found uh, the gene that was expressed in the um, organizer region which we call the shield in the mid 90s you know a, a gene that was organizing the axis of the zebrafish essentially and it turned out to be um the corresponding uh to guscoid in in mouse there has been so many discoveries with zebrafish it's really difficult to you know just say that in a in a in a few minutes but essentially zebrafish has been now used in all biomedical fields it's been used it's, it's being used in cancer research and behavioral biology and evolutionary biology um immunology toxicology and you know you name it you name it really you name it it's still strongest suit i think is the genetics because it's amenable amenable to genetic manipulation by creating transgenes and with crispr and cas genetic editing um it has become an even more powerful model its its weakness was that we couldn't do site directed mutagenesis for a long time so now we can do that Sorry so as the director of the Zebrafish International Center I see you kind of a, of as a father figure for zebrafish <laughs> so No 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 <laughs> there are others there are others who f fit that model um 
much better than I do. But is, is there any particular study that you are particularly proud of that was done in zebrafish? There are several. There are, again, several. I think what fascinates me is a line from Brent Weinstein's lab, which is the Y1 allele, and it's essentially a fluorescent angiogram of the zebrafish larvae. And so, you know, the, an enhanced green fluorescent protein is essentially highlighting all the blood vessels. And it's just one of those, it's just one of those fish lines or families that is just, a, it's very popular, but it's fascinating to see every time. So when you look at it, one, you see like a, all the blood in green. Yes. Wow. Not the blood, the blood vessels. The blood vessels, sorry. The other one, which I thought was an aha moment, is there have been really extensive studies of the optic tectum in zebrafish. And there has been a calcium indicator of neural activity, which has been cloned into zebrafish. And it's this was a Japanese lab. And they had a fluorescent atemia, uh, sorry, a fluorescent paramecium swimming in front of the zebrafish from left to right. And in the zebrafish, the optic fields of the eyes 100% traverse the midline of the brain, and they're in the opposite optic tectum. So when the fish was on the left side, you could see a little spot light up in the, in the tectum of the fish, and you could see the fish see. Wow. Right. That's so cool. And so that that was really one of those one of those experiments where I thought, oh my goodness, this is just so amazing, right? Wow, that's that is really cool, yeah. Yeah. And Dr. Raga, you say you have around five thousand lines in your in the center? Uh, we have about twelve thousand six hundred lines. Oh my god. Can you remember some of those mutations and, and what do they do? Is are there any particular ones that, that jump to your mind now? Well, for example, the Y1 is one of those. Yeah. But um, one, some, some mutations, most, most mutations are embryonic lethal, right? Okay. And uh, we keep them as heterozygotes to propagate them. But there are a few which we can keep alive because they're, they are not embryonic lethal. And they're typically, um, well, the, the transgenic ones, but they're also, for example, pigment mutations. And so we have a few pigment mutants, actually double mutants that we keep. And um, they are great examples to explain to visitors, um, school classes, you know, the nature of mutations and why mutations are interesting for researchers to, 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 to use, right? So what's the phenotype in them? So for example, um, there is um, one mutation, a double mutation where we lose melanophores and iridophores and they're slightly yellowish. We call them absolute, like the vodka. <laughs> and then the other one is Casper, where the fish appears white. It has lost the xanthophores, the yellow pigment, and the melanophores. And so all that is left are now the iridophores, a little bit of the iridophores, and so it appears whitish. We call it Casper, like the friendly ghost, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so those are very, first of all, they are still popular mutants in the research community, because if you make a reporter gene, now you can use adults and they're similarly transparent as the embryos. They never develop the black pigment, the mel melanophores, that actually blocks the view inside the fish, right? So these are useful at uh, older stages, but they're also great to explain the nature of mutations and, you know, do some outreach to school classes. Dr. Varga, can I ask you of a, of a study that you made some time ago? 
Well, um, so one, one study where I started in zebrafish was to fate map the neural plate. And uh, what it entailed was to inject neural plate cells with a vital dye, a fluorescent vital dye, and then to check the next day where those cells had ended up. And so that was, um, was very slow work because in order to collect data, you had to you know, inject and then a fair number of cells never survived, especially when you were learning in the beginning. But then after about a, a year and a half, you know, you had enough data points that things started to make sense and, and fell into place. And that was fascinating because previously I was trained as a neuroscientist. And so I was used to looking at, you know, something that is happening right front of me. And biology happened right in front of me, for example, in neural recordings, right? And so this was a disconnect for some time in the sense that whatever I poked, you know, there was a result the next day. And then the result was even harder to understand until a year or so has, had passed, right? And it was not as connected and not as spontaneous as the, the research I was used to. But um, the, the specific question was, you know, whether we... There's a, a mutation that is called cyclops. It's also in the nodal pathway that uh, defines the, the midline. And the question was, you know, why does a cyclops have a single eye, right? And so uh, the discovery was that we found that we all have a single eye field as in the neural plate. And then during development, that eye field is separated by cell movements into two eye lobes. And that's the normal development, but in the mutation, that separation never happens, right? Do you know why that separation never happens? It's probably a combination of cell movements and of inductive signaling events. The eye field, the single eye field, is underlied by the mesendoderm. Mm -hmm. And that probably has signaling functions. And then at the same time, you know, that part of the ventral forebrain, which makes the ventral forebrain, is moving into the eye field. And whether that's active or by signaling, you know, I couldn't tell that. But the cells that are behind the eye field end up between the eyes and in front of the eyes. And so that's how the separation happens. Dr. Varga, when I said I wanted to ask you a question about one of your old articles, I, I'm really happy all you've you told, but because this is amazing. But I had a question in mind actually about a, oh, okay. par a particular article that is the one that you studied the role of cortisol and stress. Ah, yeah. Okay. Why yes. why is it cortisol considered the a stress indicator? It is one of the first hormones from the adrenal cortical. Uh, adrenal cortex that is released in response of stress. It's really in in response to f uh, fright and flight, right? It's the same in humans, same in fish. And um, actually, I was not the main author on this um, on this um, research, but it was Jennifer Ramsey from my my Kent's laboratory who did her PhD with him. And uh, so she did that research here in the Zerk facility, right? Stuff like this would hardly be possible with today's ICOC rules, but back then it was possible. And so the question we asked is, first of all, what are stressors that we can identify? 
And so crowding fish was one of them because we were interested not just in temporary stress like netting, we were also interested in uh, long-term stress and effect of that on the fish well-being, right? And so we crowded them by, we kept them in 20 gallon tanks, but then for crowding, we left them in the 20 gallon tanks, but we put them inside a much smaller container and we had a long tube that went into that container in the middle of a 20 gallon tank. And that's how we fed them during the trial period. And so we had fish that were fed and crowded and fish that were unfed and crowded for short periods of time. And so we looked at different stresses in combination with each other or alone. And um, we measured the cortisol response, the long-term cortisol response and the short-term cortisol response. And it appears that feeding has an important effect, right? That starving was one of the major contributors of stress rather than the crowding itself. Yes, right? it's certainly certainly more important. But the tank architecture actually played a crucial role. So if you had these experiments in a 20-gallon tank, crowded, the fish were less stressed as if you had them crowded in a one-gallon tank under the same conditions. And so... The other thing that we found is that the perception, the fish's perception of its environment um, exacerbates, you know, the type of spatial stress or crowding stress that they, you know, perceive. And, you know, all these stresses are, of course, layers of stress that essentially add up. Dr. Varga, let's do our first break. And then I want to ask you about some career shifts that you made that I, I looking at your career, I noticed that you did at least two career shifts. Okay. Let's see if we agree, all right? <laughs> okay. So let's see what songs you picked. Right now we're listening to Tokara. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. And before the break, we were listening to Bach's English Suit Number no. One in A Major. Why did you pick this song? So Tokara, I'm listening to it right now, and I feel like somebody's coming. I'm about to get murdered. <laughs> um, so the Bach piece, um, the Bach piece is um, part of my own history in a sense. The title is called Allemande, and I grew up in the Alemannic region of Germany, the very far southwest. That's the only relation to where I grew up, but I picked this one because of that. I have to confess that I didn't know what Allemande is. Yeah. So I looked it up, and it says it's German, but in French. Is the, is the, yeah, yeah. Is how French called the Germans. 
it's how the French call the Germans, but it's a generalization. There's a specific uh, dialect in southern southwest Germany, Alemannisch, which and and that region is where the Alemannic people still live, so to say. Which is interesting because in Spanish Germans we would call them Alemanes, which is super yeah. similar. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. and, and sorry, why did you pick Toccata? The, the history here, for my personal history, is that I was forced by my parents to study piano when I was seven, eight, up until I was 14 and I started rebelling. And um, a couple of years later, I went back to keyboards and um, I had a fantastic church organ teacher. And this is the this piece is the uh, the the piece that I will never be able to play. <laughs> okay. <laughs> is it is it because it's super super hard or what? It is extremely hard. It's one of those pieces where you not just need to, you know, memorize the entire piece, but you have to have real muscle condition to play it. You know, those um, arpeggios in the right hand are just absolutely painful and after you know two-thirds of the piece it it is physically painful to 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 play this wow maybe someday nah, not no not me <laughs> <laughs> dr varga you haven't always worked with fish so i looking at your at your scientific record you did some work with opossums right yes yes so this was my um phd work and i've and my undergraduate work. And I forgot to mention John Nichols, who um, was my PhD advisor at the time in at the Biocenter in Basel. And it was a it was a fantastic time. You know, I really I mean, I, I love John and um, every everything in his lab that happened is great memories. And the, the reason um, we were looking at opossum is that his lab was interested in in central nervous system regeneration. And he discovered that the opossum, being a mammal, was born immature enough that it resembled a, I think, a 14-day rat embryo, which was much more difficult to access than the opossum, which is a marsupial. And you could essentially take the prematurely born opossum babies off the mom. So he had developed a culture system for the central nervous system. The entire central nervous system was in culture. And so the question was, if you lesion, let's say the spinal cord, whether fibers would be able to grow back, because in the adult, we know this is very difficult. It doesn't happen. It happens only with very, very special treatment and immediate care after the injury happened. And then years and years of uh, physical therapy, some success can be obtained. So the really interesting thing was that when you put these 14-day um, um, opossum central nervous systems in culture and you lesion the spinal cord with a, by crushing um, the fibers in, in the spinal cord um, on one side, right? So you had a control on the other side. Those fibers actually grew back. Hmm. Okay. But if you did that about a week later with a week older embryos, they did not. And so we looked at the electrophysiology of that recovery, and we looked at the cellular extension of neurites across the lesion. And essentially what it comes down to is that uh, myelination and the development of um, um, oligodendrocytes 
prevents growth of the neurites in addition to the astrocytic scar that can also develop. So once once it it's my, my uh, what is it what's the word myelin myelin myelination 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 so the um, nerve fibers are surrounded by another type of um, glial cell yep. which are oligodendrocytes and they essentially make a an insulation and allow saltatory jump of the uh, neuronal signals so once that is covered once that started once, once myelination started there's no chance the period where recovery would occur ends Wow. Right. And is there any way to reverse that now? Well, we don't want to reverse it, but I think um, where John wanted to go with this is to understand which surface proteins or which other mechanisms that are associated with myelin um, bring um, the, the regenerative capacity to an end in the immature nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so um, he has pursued that until his retirement, but... Um, There have been other there has been other research that has followed up on this. So, Dr. Varga, how did you go from opossums to zebrafish? Yeah. So, one question, obviously, when a nervous system regenerates, is how do you connect the nerve fiber that um, activated your pinky back to your pinky and not to your little toe? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, you need to have patterning and cues in the nervous system that help the growing uh, neurites to orient themselves, make decisions of um, switching sides or make taking a corner. And these kind of pattern patterning questions were very popular at the time. And in one area, the zebrafish had just started to look at brain patterning. And so I ended up with um, the question of how does the brain get regionalized and patterned early on in the neural field so that it forms the different uh, brain regions, you know, that we, the main brain regions that we, we know of the mammalian brain or the vertebrate brain. And that's how you ended with zebrafish? That's how I ended up with zebrafish. Yeah. Okay. Because then the next step was the, the, the fate map of the neural plate, right? And then the other career shift, so this is a, a model career shift. It's not even a career shift. It's just a change of model. But what I see as a little bit of a career shift is that being the director of the Zebrafish, Zebrafish International Resource Center, I imagine that you must have put aside a lot of research time to become a little bit of a manager and a facilitator for other people to do research, right? It's quite accurate because um, I, I was a junior research group leader in Freiburg and uh, really enjoyed that time. Had a great lab. It was just taking off and everything. And... Um, I decided to accept the job here in, in Eugene for the for the ZERC, the Zebrafish International Resource Center. And so we had to give that all up, but it didn't happen all at once. My boss, Monty, Monty Westerfield, was incredibly generous that um, my PhD student and one of my postdocs uh, could continue their research in his lab and finish up. So I had a little bit of a transition time to kind of ease out of, of, of research myself while starting to get acquainted with the Zurich environment and the new job requirements. And it's true, as researchers, we're not trained to manage people. We're not trained in administration. We're not trained in the legislative issues that come with, with the job. And so th that was all things that I had to pick up in the past years even, and it's still not, you know, it, it still, still feels sometimes, the, bureauc the bureaucracy still gets to me sometimes. 
Can you remember any naive mistakes that you made just because you were a researcher and then you became a manager? Yeah, so, I mean, one thing is if you're a researcher, you know, you control the accuracy and the, should I say, the, the dedication that goes into an experiment. And for me personally, caring about an issue is the most important thing. Um, if somebody doesn't care, it means really there is no love, right? And um, so I maybe overdid, you know, when I was a researcher that I, I tried to make 100% or 110% sure that what I found was accurate. And now I didn't have that insight anymore. I had to trust other people that they are just as precise and dedicated and conscientious, you know, when they did their research. And the beginning of that was, um, you know, not quite, quite easy. But you learn to be a patient, you know, and to trust. You know. And that is, that is really important because um, you can only foster this um, among others also. It's not something that um, is a given, you know. And so this had to come from me and I had to give up my impatience, you know. And I had to give up my, um, yeah. was this properly done? <laughs> you know. <laughs> And uh, just trust people that they have done it again and again and again and made sure that the result was properly uh, obtained, you know. So the caring part is one of the aspects that you miss most from being a researcher. What, what else do you miss? Well, the care of the research, but also the excitement of, you know, finding something, you know, and, and, and um, something new that hasn't been there before or, you know, that is new for me, you know, but it doesn't have to be a revolutionary thing, but it's kind of these little aha moments. And you know, I, I used to tease my, uh, my colleagues in the lab by walking in on them, um, you know, 9 a.m. and ask, so what did I discover today? <laughs> <laughs> While they did all the work. Yeah. And so... There is some excitement in doing the research hands-on yourself and really being intimately involved with the animal, with the cells, with the observation, and then putting the observations together to a result. And, you know, either it confirms a hypothesis or it rejects a hypothesis, but you learn something by your own research. And now it's others doing the job, you know, and I had to essentially do the same job, but um, they were... In immediately involved with the with the research, and I was removed from the research. And then, of course, the next bigger transition was to let research essentially go all the way. You know, when I started here at Zerk, right? Because then it was really about um, running the resource center, and the only research we do here is really into husbandry-related issues and about um, health-related issues. Okay. And that's all interesting. But of course, you know, from my um, scientific upbringing, you know, I used to be interested in, in very different things. Right? Yeah, 100%, I imagine it must be a little hard. I, I find it still gratifying, you know, when, when I know, you know, certain lines we have provided to researchers, and then they come out with a cool paper. Yeah, you, you empower other researchers to exactly. do research. Yeah, exactly. that's, and that's really cool. And I wanted to ask you, ask you about the challenges you faced. And I can think that, of course, the, the, pand the pandemic was pretty, I imagine it was a challenge. But the center had a big fire at one point. Yes. Yeah. Thank goodness the fire was not that big. Oh, okay. But the impact was big. Um, uh, 
if light fixture, I mean, this is the best we could reconstruct because it's still not 100% certain what happened. But I think on a cold spring morning in May, end of April, a light fixture had some condensed water. Um, there was a shortage and it started burning. It dropped on a um, work surface below, which was highly flammable. We didn't know the material was highly flammable at the time. And so the quarantine room essentially burned out. It was just black, charred, molten racks. And uh, we had, uh, I think, 12 or so fish lines in there. And three of those fish lines we had to euthanize and re-import, but the others we cryopreserved the next day. And so, and then the, the center was impacted in such a way that the smoke and soot distributed across the entire building through the false ceiling and went into the fish room, went into the aquaculture filtration equipment. And so what we ended up with was a nine to 10 month um, restoration of the entire building. Wow, what a um, mess. It was a, it was a total mess. I mean, the office area, which is right adjacent to the quarantine room, was cleaned three times over and still smelled like soot. And um, we had to bring in um, UV air um, ionizers to um, get rid of the smell. And we probably didn't, didn't get rid of the soot. I mean, I can still today walk into areas of the fish room and I have little, little nooks and crannies where I know if I put my finger there and swipe, there will be soot. Wow. They say the smell is the, the hardest thing to get rid of, yeah. And, and, and the thing that everywhere. sticks more to people's memory. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, that's why fumigation, you know, when you have pests, is so effective because it goes in every, every corner. Yeah. So we got fumigated out of our own building. <laughs> By yourselves. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's do our final break and then we'll come back. I'm going to ask you about some interesting hobbies that you have. Okay. Okay. Let's see if you can hear the songs now. Right, so right now we're listening to Can't Happen Here by Rainbow. Okay. 
So before in the first break we saw your more classical side. Now we're seeing your your rocking side, I guess. Yes, yes. Wh why I'm, did you pick this one? The Django Reinhardt song. Yeah, that, sorry. Before the break we were listening to Minor Swing by by Django Reinhardt. Yeah. Yeah. So that one I picked because um, one of that rebellious phase was that I picked up the guitar before I went back to church organ, and then. Once I had a little more time here at the Zerg, when things had quieted down after my transition, I started taking um, guitar lessons. And, to to um, play gypsy jazz? I, I do. And, uh, and because my background is Hungarian, of course, there's a strong relationship to Roma and Sinti culture um, that I have been exposed to. And Django Reinhardt, of course, was a, I think he was Roma in Belgium. Um, and so <clears throat> his his life story is fascinating for that reason but it's also fascinating because he had a horrible accident and um he essentially his hand burned and he couldn't move um two of his fingers they fused oh and so he had three fingers to play the guitar and one of the was is one of the greatest jazz virtuosos yeah. and he's a creator of a style too right he's a creator of a style exactly yeah and so um so that's you know that's the type of thing i admire and i also enjoy the type of music and it's part of my background and then uh can't happen here that's really two things one is it's probably an average of my modern music taste because i'm my music taste goes from things like jean-michel jarre to kraftwerk so it's synth pop music uh, to um, regular pop music and into into rock music, um, fusion rock, prog progressive rock. The other title I gave you was Yes's um, Love Will Find A Way. So that would have been also kind of in this average, but it goes into the depths of um, heavy metal and, and anything. Uh, music for me is really a vehicle for human emotions and human expression. I find it interesting if it has an interesting melody or some musical interesting challenge or what, uh, what rhythm, or if it carries a message that is interesting. And, um, you know, Rainbow is um, not around anymore for a long, long time now, but at the time, um, it was one of my favorite bands, you know. And the message in this song is "Can't Happen Here" is just what we're um, is what we're observing in these days, right? Can't happen here. Um, I come from a country where um, fascism and communism were both prominent in the sense that in East Germany we had the glorious socialism, and in the past of East and West Germany we had fascism. And of course, my Hungarian background also exposed me to those two extremes of the political spectrum. And can't happen here expresses really that. You, Everybody you see thinks that happening? it can't happen here, right? Oh, okay. There's actually a book written about it can't happen here, about how a U.S. politician will come to power and um, essentially expressing the notion that if fascism comes around in the United States, it will be under the Star Spangled Banner. Right. Wow. And um, we have seen tendencies, not just in the US, but even in Germany with uh, political parties and in Brazil and in other areas of the world where these author authoritarian and yeah. autocratic rulers try to take over. Mm -hmm. And the notion that it can't happen here 
really signifies that we all have to be vigilant all over the world. If we want to save democracy, we have to go to the middle, not to the extremes. Yeah, 100%. I agree. Dr. Varga, do you think in German or in English? Good question. At work, I, I think I speak, uh, think in English. At home, I think I think in German. And with my parents, I probably, not always, I think German and Hungarian. Wow. Depending on the subject. What a, what a mess. <laughs> <laughs> what a mixture. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about, you have two hobbies that I wouldn't say are that common. Mm. Or at least for me, or, or where I'm from. And mm. one is archery. Yeah. You're into archery. Yes. So I had a bow uh, flying around for a couple of years and never really picked it up. But I was interested in it. And when the pandemic came around, we had to stay home. You know, there were breaks between work and Zoom meetings where I said, okay, I need to get my mind off and re regenerate. And so I picked up the bow. I got two hay bales painted a big red spot on them and started and um, learned essentially from YouTube videos, um, some tricks and um, ideas. And then with Terry Tiersch, we've been, you know, talking about these things also. And so I learned a lot of stuff from him. And it's, it's, it's quite nice because you can just zone out, focus on that spot and try to hurl arrows at it and uh, forget, you know, whatever's going on. So you can regenerate mental capacity really quickly, I find. So is that what you like about it, that you that it makes you forget everything else that's going around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And same for the next one that I, now you're going to ask. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> your your other hobby is fly fishing. Yes. So why, why do you have to be so concentrated for fly fishing? Uh, concentrated not, but um, you're in nature. And you can really just let go. We have um, an expression in German, German, die Seele baumeln lassen, which means you can let your soul relax, and you know, and you're trying to match, you know, the um, the insects that are on the water, and you hope that uh, there will be a fish that is foolish enough to to go for the bait, you know. Do you design your own flies? I I did do a few own fly tying. Uh, I tied a few flies myself in the past, but I didn't design any. No, I was just um, learning from a book how to do it. It's fun. And what is your what is your famous phrase or, or the funny phrase that you say about fly fishing? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are so many patterns out there, and they are all designed, you know, to um, tell the fish that it's this insect or this other insect. And in the end, you know. There are more fishermen hooked on fly catching, uh, <laughs> buying flies, you know, than you really need. I mean, the simplest fly patterns, you know, that just look like a bunch of wool and feathers, you know, catch um, fish quite effectively. Yeah, so the it's simplest ones. Do you think people are designing flies for fly fishing, thinking of men, not on fish? No, no. I think there's an honest um, attempt, you know, to imitate oh, okay. a pupa or a, or a fly, but. In the end, you know, the fish sees, uh, you know, just the outline of a, of a body shape, right? And maybe some indentations on the water um, that imitate feet or something like that. So, and for trout specifically, you know, they have to have a split second decision whether they come out of out behind a stone and spend the energy on going for that fly. So there, there can't be too much thought into it. On the other hand, there are waters that are very clear, very slow, 
and the fish have a lot of time to look at that thing and they won't bite you know so it's there's still an element of luck or of chance and uh, that's also part of it you know have you gone recently fly fishing no no I went just last weekend in the hopes I could go but there was so much rainfall here that the uh, creek I was um, visiting was just there was so much flow and so such strong flow of the water that it was impossible to fish but it was a great great hike Dr. Varga, are you familiar with the game I play with my guests in which I, I use artificial intelli intelligence to generate an image that it's related to my guests? You, you mentioned it, yes. Have you had a chance to look at the image? I did, yeah, yeah. What do you think I typed into the prompt? I think you said something about fly fishing. Yeah. And catching a trout. <laughs> so actually, actually... Or catching a zebra fish. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I did a I actually did a cartoon style of a yeah. of a man fly fishing with a uh, fly fishing a zebra fish. Uh -huh. But can you guess the cartoonist I ask? No, no. So, I don't know if this is familiar for you or not, but Vico von Bülow? Ah, Vico von Bülow? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So he's a German uh a German uh, satiricist and uh, comedian. He passed away, but he is very, very well known for caricaturizing, you know, the the snobbish middle class. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw some of his cartoons. I didn't understand them all, but, but they're pretty good, yeah. And then, Dr. Raga, there's another game that I play with my guests. That is, I ask Chat GPT, what would be a funny question for my guest, right? So I ask him, or he or she, I don't know what it is. What would be a funny question to ask a German researcher that lives in the US and is the director of the Zebrafish Center? Are you ready for the question? Okay. If you were to organize a Zebrafish Oktoberfest, what kind of decorations and activities would you have at the party? <laughs> Pickled zebrafish. <laughs> what? Pickled zebrafish. Pickled zebrafish. <laughs> and then I asked for another question and it said, If you could give a zebrafish a job at your zebrafish center, what kind of position do you think it would excel at? Eating. <laughs> <laughs> Eating and breeding. <laughs> Dr. Raga, thank you so much for being part of Science Stories. Do you have a good time? Yes, thank you. It was an honor to be here. <laughs>